Is that why? Yeah. Okay. Um, any any prayer request? Yes. Yeah, we have one. Sure. Good. You know, we um, we visit our daughter, bring half of her stuff up. College and we went to a restaurant and we saw a friend. Saw an old friend and I'm not sure. He said he's, and it's possible he's homeless. Oh. Not exactly sure. How old? 60. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just look at him, he looks youthful. But. He's a friend of yours? Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen him in yeah. 20 years. What's his name? Eugene. Bless your soul for praying for him. I think we're meant to go to see him there. I just, I don't know. I hope you go see him. And it's good to hear your daughter's up. Not yet. Oh, not yet? Not yet. She has one more exam to do. And Anybody else? Anybody else? Yes, Bob. I'd like to ask uh, that you say, we all say, prayer for a very good friend of ours who passed away last week. Uh, been friends with, we've been friends with this couple for over 20 years, and... Um, he has been battling cancer for over 10 years. Thought he had it beat about six years ago, but it came back this past fall. And he died very suddenly. Um, he went on hospice, and within two days, he was gone. Oh, wow. um, so his name was Ray, and we say a prayer for him and his family. Appreciate it. Um, dang. What's your friend's name again? Ray. Eugene. Eugene. Eugene and Ray. Eugene. Eugene and Ray. Yes, Ray is hers. Is Ray oh, is hers. Sorry, cut. <laughs> you guys, please know, remember that I'm losing my mind here. So help me out. It's okay. It's okay. I'm confused with the or most ordinary things right now. So <laughs> it's getting worse and worse for Suzanne and me. I, I know for me, it's got to be worse for her because of me. Um, any other prayers? Yes, Rod. <coughs> Rod, your friend yeah, in California. Yeah, my friend. Yeah. Robert. Christopher. Got that It's Rod, right, Bob? Yeah, right. Actually, pray for his wife too, because he's not a he's not an easy patient. <laughs> <laughs> Who is? I don't know. Some people are. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm missing somebody, but thanks. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself. Doc, what was the reading this morning? Um, the Acts of the Apostles with the... Um, welcoming in the Gentiles, the sheep. Right, and? And Christ the shepherd. Um, shepherd weekend. Yeah, but what was it? Give me the, do you remember what? Oh, I don't remember. Oh, the sheepfold? Yeah. The sheep. He's the gate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, thank you for our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass and your words to us. Um, your words um, were a recollection of Peter's vision. Um, 
he was ready to, in some sense, keep a Christianity that wasn't formed yet in the Jewish world, expecting everybody to be circumcised and go through the, the observances, the ritual observances, and had that vision. You spoke to him and made it clear that he was to come out. That helped break open that world um, into something larger and ask the Jews to follow, um, to not be bound by those ritual observances. Um, and um, you repeated your call to us um, to follow you and reassure us that um, you know, we know your voice and you call us to come to you, that you are a gate and it's only by passing through you um, that we have any safety. Strengthen each of us to take your call seriously, um, to do what you've asked, um, to be sheep. Um, <laughs> you don't ask us to not fight, but you do ask us to be ready to give our lives. Strengthen all of us in our efforts to do that, to learn to put ourselves away, to grow in humility like sheep, to offer ourselves, to not make so much of ourselves so that we can better do your will. Help us all to do this. I ask for a special blessing on Eugene. Goodness. Um, if he's destitute or homeless or without help, send help to him, please. Um, help this man. Um, he's too close to death not to be rushed if, to death if he doesn't have help. Protect him. Send help to him. Um, um, be with Ray and his family, maybe most especially his family. Um, you know him, as we don't, I don't, to have battled cancer for so many years and survived. Had to have been a strong man. Um, receive him into your kingdom. If there's a time in purgatory, um, speed him and let our prayers help. Um, and whatever, whatever time is like in purgatory, let him be there in a spirit of joyful expectation, knowing that he is going to see you um, soon. Um, increase his joy being there. Um, be with Rod, um, watch over him in this ordeal, surround him with your protection, be with his wife, particularly if he's not an easy patient. Um, some of us aren't. Um, watch over Christopher in his search for a job, um, keep his heart quiet, um, help him to trust, um, particularly in whatever difficulties he faces um, trying to find a job. And we offer thanksgiving. In case you all don't know, Bev is um, back. We saw her in church Saturday, and um, I think she's going to be here Friday morning. Um, how good you are to have stayed with her in this. Um, protect her if she's fragile right now. Help her to be careful. Um, but we are grateful for the help that you gave her in her operation. Be with her through her recovery help her get back to her feet where I know she wants to be. Um, 
and help us in this work that we're doing together to be strengthened in our faith, all of us, to take a greater courage in what we do. We offer these prayers, Christ, in your name. Amen. Amen. So, can everybody take out the done poem? We'll do the last done. A hymn to Christ at the author's last going in Germany. If you don't have a copy, don't worry about it. You can just listen. Don't don't worry. You don't you don't need in fact it's even good not to read it. Just listen to it, knowing that it's poetry and it's supposed to be read. I have to say before we start, every once in a while I look at it, you guys, I said this often enough, you're probably tired of hearing me say it, but I am so proud of you guys. I am, I am, genuinely, that you guys have done this continues to amaze me. You guys aren't here to get credit for a class. You're not trying to move ahead your career, to advance your career by a degree. Um, you're taking time out of a schedule when you could be doing other things to do this. You're, you're actually going to be, you're actually doing what Boethius says is that you're doing something that our culture has lost sight of. I, I hope you're doing something for the good of the thing itself. I, it, I, you cannot know the amazement I feel to see you guys continue to do this. How good you are, how good you are to be doing this. Okay. <coughs> Don't get cocky. Um, Duns, a hymn to Christ, going into Germany. In what torn ship soever I embark, that ship shall be my emblem of thy ark. What sea soever swallow me, that flood shall be to me an emblem of thy blood. So thou with clouds of anger do disguise thy faith, yet through that mask I know those eyes, which though they turn away sometimes, they never will despise. I sacrifice this island unto thee, and all, all whom I love there, and who love me. When I have put our seas twixt them and me, put thou thy seas betwixt my sins and thee. As the tree sap doth seek the root below, in winter, in my winter now I go, where none but thee, the eternal root of true love, I may know. Our hope is that all of us dying will go home. Nor thou nor thy religion dost control the amorousness of a harmonious soul, but thou wouldst have that love thyself, as thou art jealous, Lord, so I am jealous now. Thou lovest not till from loving more thou free my soul. Whoever gives takes liberty. Oh, if thou carest not whom I love, alas, thou lovest not me. Seal then this bill of my divorced all. It's turning his back on everything. On whom those fainter beams of love did fall, marry those loves, which in youth scattered be on fame, wit, hopes, false mistresses to thee. <laughs> That's Boethius' argument. 
He spent his life looking for wealth, fame, glory, power, um, and finding that all of them left him empty and unsatisfied. Mary, those loves which in youth scattered be on fame, wit, hopes, false mistresses to thee. Churches are best for prayer that have least light. To see God only, I go out of sight. And to escape stormy days, I choose an everlasting night. There's this mystical aspect of Dunn, if you've read enough of his poem, extraordinary poet, this sense of entering into darkness was the correlative of turning away from the world. That it, it, turning from the world and entering into that darkness, he more closely approached God. Okay, I'm going to do a brief review and then I've got a couple of basic questions. And um, and Gita has promised to lead us off here. <laughs> here, very, very quick review. Very, very quick review if I can do this. Dante's living around 1300, and we know um, that it's roughly in that period that the Babylonian captivity takes place. That the Curia has moved from Rome to um, France. There's no clear indication that, that um, the papacy is under the influence of the emperor. Um, it, it's subordinate to political powers. It's moved to Paris. We know from the Borgia family and all the corrupt popes that the, the church is rife with corruption. It's stinking with wealth. Um, it was a corrupt period. Dante's writing in the midst of that period. We know from the Commedia that, um, I mean, if we didn't know it outside of it, we'd know it in the Commedia, that two of the more recent reform movements were the Franciscan movement and the Dominican movement. Um, both of them relatively recent. So, the, um, and the way that Dante describes it, remember, is that there were these two wheels of a chariot, that God had picked out these two men to help the church recover its balance, its health. So we know that reforms are going on. Almost every episode, every canto in the Divine Comedy contains a denunciation of the corruption of the church. More so in heaven. Mm -hmm. Far more in heaven than in other purgatory. Um, heaven's embarrassed. I mean, there's no other way to put it. It's embarrassed at the corruption of the church. Angry. Well, indignant. Angry. They're, they're outraged at what the church is doing. So you know that the, the, um, Dante's writing at a time when the church is full of corruptions. Take a look at his response. Okay, writing this poem, he has very few good, but he, he always manages in the way that he presents something to recall some good to mind. Whoever it is, it could be Peter, James, it can be the um, Francis or um, Dominic, Peter Damien, who was a great reformer, Benedict, you know. He, he, he reminds us that, that there are these impulses of virtue and goodness in the church, still alive. Um, during the Reformation, 16th century, um, 17th century, Milton is writing towards the end of the Reformation period. Wycliffe, Luther, Calvin have all done their work. They're a little bit behind Milton, but he's coming out of that period, and he's a product of that Reformation. The church is full of corruptions. We historically went through it. 
um, most of the Reformation thinkers, the major ones, Wycliffe, Luther, Calvin, hated the Catholic Church. Um, the one thing that they had in common, they disagreed with each other. The one thing they had in common was their hatred of the Catholic Church. They were, they were as aware of the corruptions of the church as Dante. Um, their response to it is very different. Um, what they did in their Reformation thinking was radically change a whole host of things. Um, just but before I get there, just to recall some of the history, remember that during that period, um, different peoples and different classes of people, the lower class, say, as opposed to the wealthy, different classes of people were attaching themselves to certain beliefs. So the, the Scots, for example, were through and through Presbyterian. Calvinist Presbyterian. The English were Anglican, upper church. The aristocracy had a much firmer control on what was going on there. So the Anglican church grew it, and so did the Episcopal church. The wars between those two denominations, if you can call them that, were violent. Um, the, the Presbyterians were hoping that if they could get into power, remember, they could force the Anglicans to conform to their way. The, pre the, the Anglicans wanted to defeat the Presbyterians in order to make them follow their way. So both parties were using political power to force the other to conform to what they believed was the right way, the, the, the proper re reform. Um, the, the one of the interesting things about what comes out of the Reformation, remember, is that um, the Puritans are a group who felt that the Anglicans did not go far enough in their reforms, that they were still too much like Catholics. That was their criticism. They observed these rituals. In, on, by surface appearance, they appeared to be Catholic. They were observing the rituals, the Eucharist. Um, so they were far more radical in the reforms that they wanted. They were forced out of England, along with the Catholics. They had to flee for their lives. They went to the Netherlands. And after trying to have found a Calvinistic colony there, they finally went to America. That's the beginning of our country. It was the, the Puritans who fled to the Netherlands, who had to leave the Netherlands to come to America, where they wouldn't find any opposition, that they could found a commonwealth and try to make real what they'd been unable to do back in the Netherlands or England. So our beginnings, the northern beginnings in the north, um, are Calvinistic um, Presbyterian. Fundamentally, um, Milton was aware of all that um, and was writing as a Reformation thinker. So if we look at both periods, um, both periods are, are full of corruption and turmoil, but in a very different way. Um, the, the battles in Milton's, or sorry, in Dante's time were largely between groups who um, divided their loyalties between the emperor and the pope, the Ghibellines and the, Gil the Guelphs. The Guelphs, remember, divided down in white and black. Um, the whites wanted complete independence from either power. But they believed it should be a man's right to choose where his allegiances were. The blacks looked back to um, the papacy. So there were divisions that led to violent conflicts. People went to war and killed each other. We saw that in Dante. Um, so many of the souls that we see in, in, the, in Inferno, in the Purgatorio, are there 
because they died violent deaths. They didn't have time to confess. They were killed. Um, so the, what's at issue, I'm simplifying a lot, but there's something to be said for this. What's at issue is a conflict between church and state powers. The church in the 13th century is still trying to extricate itself from its powers, to sort itself out. That's the major accomplishment of the church in the Middle Ages. I'm saying that with no exaggeration. That's the great accomplishment. Because if you go back to the 6th century, you know that the church is embroiled in politics for almost the entire time. The conflict at Milton's time is different. It's, it's between... It involves reformers who are breaking from the Catholic Church because they think it's... They, they think it's, what's the word, the Antichrist, that it's absolutely corrupt. They, Luther wanted to see it destroyed. Um, Calvin thought it was bad. Um, but the, the major divisions are between the reformers and the different denominations that they create, the Anglicans, the, particularly the Anglicans and the uh, Presbyterians. So even though there's confusion and corruption um, the conflicts involved are different in each one of those periods. But, but at the root of them are these struggles between state powers and the church. Even in the Reformation, you know, the, 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 it's, as I said earlier, the, 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 the Anglicans are trying to use their political... They, their hope is to defeat the Scots and force them to conform to the Anglican way. When the Anglicans defeat um, the king and turn on him and seize power, their expectation is to force the Anglicans to, to conform to their way because both, of, both parties believed that they were the right way. So at the center of both of these periods are these fundamental divisions between state and church. It's why what happens in America happens. When the founders come here, they know that, that, a, that a country, a, a nation, can, will tear itself apart if those liberties aren't protected if men aren't given the freedom to make those choices. So those things are fundamental to us. We take them for granted. They all were an outgrowth of what took place in the Reformation. So that's the historical background. Um, both writers are writing in a period of historical turmoil. Both of them are writing um, um, consciously to place themselves in an epic tradition. We've seen that. You know that, you know well now because you've done it, you know that Dante sees himself as an epic poet. He's aware of the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. He's read them. They're deeply a part of who he is, particularly Virgil. Virgil's Aeneid is in his blood, in his bones. He, he knows it inside it. Dante's a great reader of Virgil. Um, he's placing himself in the epic tradition, speaking as an epic hero, but as we've seen, he's radically changing our image of the epic hero because he takes, he's no longer looking back to the past in these great men who are warriors, fighters. Um, because of his Christian belief, he sees that what's at the essence of Christianity is not just a willingness, of, the strength of a man to fight his enemies, to defeat them. There's something greater. The most important thing for him, he's got Aristotle behind him, he's got um, St. Thomas behind him. The most important thing for him is learning. That the ultimate end of man is not just the refounding of a world, of the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. It's not just the refounding of something temporal in this world. That was the aim of the epics. 
you know, to bring the Trojan War to an end, for Odysseus to get home, for Aeneas to found Rome. The end of man is not in this world. It's with God. So there's still an epic struggle. There's not less of an epic struggle. We know Dante's damned. So there's not less of an epic struggle. There's a serious struggle between good and evil here. If Dante's left alone, he's damned. He's damned. Evil wins. We know that there's still an epic struggle, but the ultimate end of it is union with God. And we also know from Dante that man by himself cannot overcome that struggle. It's only by virtue of divine help, we've seen that, the help offered him, that, that he can come out of that condition and go home. Okay? So he radically changes the epic tradition, radically. What he does that's, that's in keeping with both Homer and Virgil is that he goes back to the past and carries it forward. Virgil's with him. Virgil takes him two-thirds of the way. When we go through the epic, we know that we're partly in a classical world. We see these classical figures, the guardians of hell, um, the angels in purgatory, that the past is there. He's making use of it. He's drawing from it, most especially with Virgil. Epos, epic, remember, means a divine word. Milton himself is locating himself in an epic past. Um, um, Self-consciously, he, he, he contemplated for years doing an epic and thought he was going to do an epic on the Arthurian romances. And he decided finally against what he took as a subject is the fall. What Milton did in that choice is astounding. What he did was let the cat out of the bag in doing that. Because he made clear by taking Genesis as his subject that the real problem with every epic before the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, was the fall. But the epic poets, the pagan poets, couldn't see it. They were pagan. They didn't know Christ. So what he's making clear is that all the disorders that the ancient epic poets were dealing with, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, had to do with man's original sin. That the ultimate source of all of our disorders goes back to that dis our original disobedience to God. When he did that, what he did, in a sense, was throw open a window on all the epics because he showed what they were all about in a way that the pagan poets couldn't have known. They weren't Christians. <clears throat> so he, he takes, he locates his epic, Paradise Lost, in the epic tradition, and he radically transforms it too. Because as a Christian, he doesn't go back to heroic deeds. Remember he said that in the seventh or eighth book when he was making that invocation. He, he said about, he thought about doing the Arthurian romances, and he said, I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is take the Christian virtues. And if you remember, he said, the virtues which he was extolling were patience and endurance. Those were the epic virtues. Um, so he was radically turning from the ancient epic, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, um, who were brave fighting warriors. Adam isn't that. Adam's not that. When Adam and Eve fall, they enter a world, and we know in the final books of Paradise Lost that they're, for, they're exiled out of Eden, they have to go into the world, and the virtues they're going to have to most count on are endurance and patience. He doesn't say much about love, and I, I made this point. He doesn't say much about Christ. It's 
it's interesting to see the way Christ is downplayed in Milton's book. We get very little about Christ. Um, the other major way in which Milton changes the epic is that he takes Satan as his hero. Seems to. The, the book opens with the fall, the, the angels having been thrown out of heaven. They're all in that burning lake. And it's then that Satan conceives this plan to try to undermine God. Get back at God. Right, yeah, to get back at God, to spite him, to try to do everything he can to undo the, the good that's rumored in heaven that God is going to make um, a new world. There's a, there's a real irony there because um, Milton presents the creation as if it were an act of spite on God's part before the fall. Um, and, and Satan knows about it. It shouldn't have come until after the fall. So, I mean, that's a, one of the technical problems of Paradise Lost. But, but um, Satan's motive, as Bellard just said, is to spite God, to get back at him, to try to undermine what he does. So he sets off, as you know, to tempt Adam and Eve, and, and what he does is going to lead to their ruin, to the fall of man, and ultimately to Christ. Um, so, um, um, just a couple of things about the, the two poems. Without going into them at any length, we know that Dante, Dante takes as his subject ordinary man, a girl off the street, Beatrice. It, it goes to Mark's question about. Um, and I, I, I don't want to go back to that, but um, give me a minute here with this because Mark's question is a. It's an important one. Remember that what Dante's doing is um, beginning with ordinary things. A girl in the street, Dante, a nothing man at that time. I mean, a man who wants to be a poet, who loved Virgil. And, um, he starts with ordinary things. And he, whatever he does, he keeps located in the world as we know it. Even if we're going through the inferno, or a purgatory, or a paradiso, we're in the world as we know it. Human beings are showing themselves we know them to be. So in all the levels of hell, lust, gluttony, whatever it is, we're watching people do what they do in real life. The only difference is the contrapasso is played off against final ends, so we see them magnified. But they're all very human. Um, um, Virgil is an ordinary man, a poet. He, he, he was a great poet. He helps Dante. Beatrice was an ordinary woman, um, and in her, we've said, remember when Dante was a young man, something happened in, in one of the scenes in which he sees her where he realizes that she images the Trinity in herself. Something so startles him, and it left a lasting impression. It made him aware that there are some human beings in whom God is more present than others. We know that. All the saints stand out that way. Dante is reminding us that that can happen with anybody. And if, if that isn't clear, remember all the sightings. You know, just to take an example, before the before the sightings, the what, we're celebrating Mary and with the three kids who Fatima. 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 Thanks. The three kids. You know, those kids were nobody. Nobody. Ordinary kids. Nobody. Now, who doesn't know them? There is something in the church that's always reminding us that God is working in our lives all around. Do we see him? 
The sightings all remind us of that because the people who see them were never famous before they happened. Suddenly their world has changed. Their world has turned upside down. Um, Dante's reminding us that there's some, God is working in the ordinary affairs of our lives. And the whole Commedia in some sense is a celebration of that fact. Families everywhere. Um, we learn right away in hell that there are fathers of children in hell, that some of the relations are in heaven while their families in hell. Um, we see the same thing in the Purgatory and the Paradiso. All the way up through the Paradiso, we're still dealing with very ordinary human beings, appearing as human beings. They're, they're revealing something divine because they've entered heaven, but they're still making us aware that there's something divine in them, something human. And over and over and over again, we're reminded that that the family relationships don't protect people because all three canticles are filled with people from families who are separated, some in hell, some in heaven. Dante's following Christ on this because Christ is very clear. There's a danger in the family. And he, what does he say? He who makes his mother more important, father more important, you know, um, go and bury the dead, uh, let the dead bury. He's really clear that when people let the family become more important than God, dangers ensue. So Dante is, takes as his topic the common, ordinary thing and does justice to that common humanity universally in every aspect of life and at the same time shows what happens with final ends, either what happens when we're damned or what happens as we move on to heaven. Milton, on the other hand, starts with what's not ordinary at all. At all. At all. He starts with that, well, he starts with Satan. Actually, is what he begins with. He starts with an angelic order. When we go to heaven, it's really, it's absolutely crucial to remember, when we go to see Adam and Eve, we're going to a condition for which we have no experience. None. None. We're back in an unfallen garden. Milton's presenting them as he conceives of them in that unfallen state, and I think it's remarkable, you know, truly remarkable what he does. But it's important, it's important to remember, he's going back to something that we don't have experience of. Um, if my own conclusions are sound, you know that I've been saying that one of the effects of the fall is this dualism that we're caught into, to this subject-object way of seeing, one of the things it seems to me that Milton does so beautifully is that he shows how, how one Adam and Eve are with each other until Satan whispers. And you remember it's after that that Eve wants to go out on her own and we, it just, it's so subtle. She, you know, and there's almost an element of pride. In, in some sense, critics are going to be cr critical of that because there's no pride in the pre-fallen condition, you know, but, but, but he's setting us up. I mean, she has this pride, she wants to go off on her own, and, and, and it's then that Satan tempts her and the fall takes place. But the important thing that I want to emphasize here is that Milton does not begin with the ordinary person. He begins in an angelic order, he goes to Adam and Eve, it's a condition for which we have no experience, and more importantly, more importantly, the greater part of our time with Adam and Eve, except for that first chapter, in Eden before Satan comes, is spent with Adam talking with Raphael. That all of the learning that takes place involving Adam comes from an angel. And we talked about the, 
the, the, the problematic aspects of that because remember, we're, we're told that Adam's going to carry that knowledge forward. It's going to be carried forward in a collective unconscious. That the knowledge that's going to, that, that men are going to inherit when, when Adam and Eve leave the garden will be this angelic knowledge. So throughout Paradise Lost, there is this, there's this exaltation of angelic modes of knowing um, that look beyond what's ordinary to, to something else. So those are some of the more important aspects of the book to keep in mind. I'm going to say one last thing, then I want to turn it over to you guys. Two of the things that, two of the things that came up during the Reformation that, that have, we have inherited in our world one of them is um, one of them is that remember all of the ref all of the Reformation thinkers, um, the major ones, rejected the authority of the church. Um, they they and rejected Peter's authority. We went over that passage a number of times when because it blew me away when I was thinking about it. I don't think I ever looked at it that closely, but remember that move that um, that scene in which. Christ asked the disciples, who do people say he is? And nobody can answer them. And then he turns to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And Christ says, um, you didn't answer that by yourself. You answered that because of God. So it's a moment of inspiration. And it seems to me, it's, and Christ confirms it. That's that taking to the auspices moment, you know, that, that confirms the authority of Peter. Um, so there were fundamental differences between the Reformation thinkers and the Catholic Church on this notion of authority. The Catholic Church believes that Christ is the founder, that the authority is there, was given to Peter, and it was made infallible, um, or one aspect of it is that with respect to doctrinal matters, um, there can't be a question of what goes on. That's Christ. So the Reformation thinkers... Um, um, denied that authority, and they made the self, the private self, the arbiter, the authority concerning matter, other matters, doctrinal matters. So, in in the one case, you've got an, a, the church, the Catholic Church, presenting authority as an objective reality, and the Protestant ref reformers claiming that it's the autonomy of the self. That each person has the right to choose his belief according to whatever he sees. He's the arbiter of his life. He can do it at what he wants. And it was on the basis of that that the um, sacraments were done away with. The sacraments in the Catholic Church are an expression of Christ's work on the world. Um, the sacraments are done away with. The Reformation thinkers deny the sacraments largely. I think Luther kept three of them. But all of them changed the Eucharist, even Luther. Um, Calvin and Wycliffe denied it. Um, they said that once the act was done, it was over. So they denied the real presence. Luther believed in the real presence, but he changed it. He said he believed in what he called consubstantiality, that Christ was present in the wafer without completely transforming it. The Catholic Church is sorry, Catholic Church and Greek, or the Orthodox world. The entire Eastern Orthodox world, Greek, Roman, I mean Russian, doesn't matter. The entire Orthodox world and Catholicism have always maintained the rightful place of the sacraments. 
and they all look at the Eucharist as the real presence of Christ. So, um, in the Catholic Church, obedience is not a small thing. Catholics are asked to do penance, to, to give obedience, because Christ himself gave obedience to God. The Protestant Church creates a problematic aspect because they tend to tr treat their own private will as an arbiter itself. Um, so they choose their own ministers. Uh, you know that it continues to fragment when people disagree. They, they go off and uh, make different churches. So um, one of them holds on to its unity still. The other has a fragmenting element in it. Those are the t two of the qualities that we're left with after the Reformation that we've, in, we've inherited in our time. Um, the, the thing about infallibility, I remember it was important because remember if, if the Protestant world is right, um, remember that Milton himself um, encouraged dissent. He was glad to see that there were different opinions. What's interesting is it didn't matter to him if they opposed each other. So it didn't bother him if, if Calvin, if one person said the Eucharist was real and another one said it's not. What happens in that moment is truth becomes relative. It becomes dependent on the position of the person treating it. So the objectivity of the truth disappears and it's replaced by what we know today as subjectivity or relativism, that whatever you want to make it is true. The infallibility, the authority given to Peter, when you look at it in that sense, is um, understandable. Because if you don't have somebody saying, no, 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 that's not so, then anybody can make up the church whatever they want. And that's why it continues to break down. So those are some of the, some of the sort of general features of you know the, the two epics and the two worlds that, um, that they um, came out of. Um, so let me stop, let me stop. I, I, I can't think of, if I left anything out. Here's my question to you guys. Um, what do you take away from all of this, Milton and Dante? And by the way, I'd like to ask everybody to be careful because I know there could be sensitive feelings here, so take some care if you would, please. But what do you make of, what has this all meant to you? Um, what do you take away from it? And I, the, I think the most important question for me is, now that you've read Paradise Lost, and you've looked at the Reformation world, and you've gone back to Dante um, at a time of serious corruptions in the church and look at what he did, what are the, do you, having read the two works now, do you find in them, either one of them, implications for our faith? Do they reveal something to us about our faith, Protestant, Catholic? If you look at Milton's Paradise Lost, does it, does it make you aware of something now in a way that you wouldn't have been before? And the same with Dante. Now that you've read Dante, if you read Dante, does it make you aware of certain things in our faith that you weren't aware of before? I really want to get to that. Can we, can we tease out the implications of these two men? What do they help us see about the Protestant Catholic souls? Shall I answer for everybody? No, you answer for yourself. I'm, I'm right now I'm protecting you so everybody doesn't jump on you. 
Well, I'll tell you what, what it's about with the two of them, and then I'll give you a personal example of exactly it. Uh, Dante was a Catholic. The Catholic Church is based on God is love, and God can't make mistakes, so everything he put on earth is good, not bad. Protestant Milton says, like the, like the Protestants, that the world is evil, not good, and you have to be very careful not to take part of that world into you and commit a sin. There's the two differences, love of God and the world is evil. Now I'll tell you my own personal example of that. My husband uh, was in a hospital in Galveston, Texas with cancer. And Is this that, before your conversion, Marcy? My conversion happened at that time. That time. And the Marcy was Protestant, if you didn't know. but. And the, uh, the hospital, it's a Catholic hospital. And because, I guess, my husband um, worked with a man who had been an Irish priest, um, the Catholics running the hospital took me in. And I, they brought me to their lunch every day. And then on the top of the hospital, top floor, I would go with them to Mass. And that's where I learned the Catholic Church is love of God. I was a Protestant, but it, it surrounded me, the Catholic love, the love of God. So I left the Protestant Church and joined the Catholic Church for that reason. The Catholic Church is the love of God, and there's nothing greater. And of each other, yeah. So you can see what I did. I left Milton, and I went to Dante. <laughs> and St. Really. Thomas. And St. Thomas, yes. of course. But you can see I did that. Yeah. Because I left the Protestant for this very reason. Yep. That the Catholic Church is the love of God. Now everyone can go home. <laughs> well, we'll see him. <laughs> I just I want to I want to um, correct something, Marcy. The same caution you provided earlier. What? Well, be careful. Oh, be careful. <laughs> be careful. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be careful. Marcy said. I, I hope I've got this right. Marcy said that. The Protestant had to be careful not to take in the evil of the world and take it in. I just want to amend that a little bit here. Remember that for the Protestant, everything is depraved, not just the world. So the danger wasn't just taking in something evil from the world. The understanding of the Protestant for most reformers was that the effects of the fall were complete, that man was depraved in essence. Yes. So he was already evil. The only way he could come out of it was um, through an act of grace involving God, so that with God's grace, you could change your inside and you know and, and carry on your life differently. But until that point, you lived in depravity. So there would be no such thing as a virtuous pagan for a for a Protestant. Um, everybody was damned unless they were saved by Christ's grace. Jeannie, what does it meant to you? 
Well, this is a really, I, I don't want to put, I mean, I don't feel like this is a, I'm so curious to take, to hear from you guys what you get out of this. So don't make it a big thing. Just what, what, what did you take from any of this, Jane? I, well, as far as Milton goes, I had read some of Paradise Lost in, in school. I don't even remember if it was high school or college, but we, I know we didn't read it all. Um, and I certainly didn't understand it the way I understand it now, Sure. back then. Um, but to me, Paradise Lost is a story um, about, you know, the, the Genesis time and the fall. Um, but it doesn't really seem to me to, to teach me anything about how, how to be a better person or, you know, how to live my life. Um, it just seems to, to teach me, to try to teach me something that I don't agree with, and that is that God is vindictive and he will punish you if you are bad, you know. So, um, to me, you know, I enjoyed reading Milton because it was beautiful poetry and it was a great story, but the, Dante was a lot harder for me to, to read, but mm -hmm. I think I learned a lot more from Dante about, you know, Aspects of theology and um, our faith, and sorry, what's the one? Aspects of our faith, mm -hmm. and um, I, I kind of hope that he, he was making hell and purgatory sound a little worse to us than maybe he really are. But um, I can't I, imagine hell being. Have to find out what hell's got to be bad. But, um, but anyway, yeah. So I mean. That, that's all I've got for right now. So. Tracy. Um, you know, uh, what comes to mind, this is not exactly answering your question, but I'm reading this um, essay about postmodernism. Wow. And, um, for my work. And can you give, before, sorry, I, I don't want to, can you give a, just a brief definition or explanation of what postmodernism is for people who might not even be familiar with that term. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's just the breakdown of, I mean, in the arts, the breakdown of modernism and the kind of notion that there's a forward, there's a forward progression of history and art and, you know, that things are becoming, um, in art, pure, in, in the sense of purely formal. Explain that, purely formal. Like, um, What's that guy who splatters all of his paint? Pollock. Pollock. Can you relate that to that, just as an example? Meaning purely about visual language, so line, color, texture, form, space. So it's not representational. Right. It doesn't present the world as we know it. It's formal in the sense that it can take an aspect like line or dot or color. So it's going back to the principles on which the, rep the representational painters worked. They had to use color and line, but the representational painters held themselves to a mimetic quality that they were imit Im imitating something, rendering something in the world. Whereas the formalists... I think they were still, think I think it was still about imitating, but from a kind of pure... Subatomic. Pure yeah. Thing, yeah. yeah. And so the breakdown of that, um, and really the, um, what I'm connecting with is the um, proliferation of relativism in all areas of life. You know, so this essay that I'm reading is about um, 
that it's not only different beliefs, I believe this, you believe that, but it's a question about what is about belief itself. And that's, um, you know, to kind of think about it starting in the Reformation and, and like I said, proliferating. Yeah. <clears throat> and so basically postmodernism is kind of like an anything goes. And I'm dealing with this artist and his work is kind of is about uh, that you can't know anything. And he's an atheist. How can be? I know, right? <laughs> so I'm kind of grappling with all this. Yeah. So if you see it, it goes straight back to here. It's yeah. kind of fascinating. Um, it really is where, I mean, if you, you've got up there private, relative, self. Can, Doug, can I interrupt for just one second? Sorry, I want to I want to add to that, sorry, because I want to just, I want to be careful here. It's not just religious thinking. Um, when, you, when you watch the effects of the Copernican Revolution and the advent of science, you know, and these modern views that are atomistic, that all things are atoms and all things are chance and we can't explain things, say. Um, so what's going on in the modern world just isn't a product of the Reformation. You've got scientific ways of thought that have helped bring us here. Just for an example to try, because I, I don't want, I want to be careful right now because you know, there are so many scientists who don't see things this way, but lots who do. Um, one, of the, one of the men that I taught with who, um, who taught physics at Alamo, just a great, great physicist, um, sent me a, um, a, um, a list of descriptions by Nobel Prize physicists, all of them, to a man. And every one of them had this awful, awful view of man. Disordered, meaningless, chaotic, no, no order, no purpose, meaninglessness. I mean, it just went on and on. These are Nobel Prize winners. A long list. And his comment to me is, where did, where did this come from? I, I want to look at the sciences. I mean, you know. But it, it was a, a, a truly gifted physicist who was horrified at watching what some modern men in the, in the realm of, in the, discipline of physics have done in the way that they look at the world and the way they're passing it on to a popular mind mm -hmm. who just eats that up. So it's not just the, the Reformation, it's the combination of a number of things going on that have led us to some of the things that you're talking about. I just wanted to be careful. Sorry, Doc. If well, where did this, where did the science, um, this is not an argument, this is a question, not yeah. an argument. Where did the scientists, I mean, what opened that door to them to, to have those Go. Science is about solving problems and finding order. So when you look in physics and you look in mathematics, there's an order to everything. When you look at man in general, we are relatively chaotic, we're stupid, we make weird decisions, <laughs> nothing true. makes sense. So, so there's a huge disorder there. So Well, the mathematical mind and the engineering mind and the scientific mind work different than the poetic mind. So when you search for order, that's where you find your peace and that's where you find beauty because it's in order. Man has a wonderful way of screwing things up in general and it is very chaotic. So that makes perfect sense that as someone who their mind works that way and that's what they think is beautiful because it's, it's in order and it's perfect. But reality, Mark, is that people basically I mean, have, I mean, they envision it as, as chaos. 
reality is it's always been there. The, question, the problem has been is your ability to recognize that it is ordered. Okay? When you stop and think about what we've advanced in the last 50 years with the digital revolution and the like, I mean, if people can't, it was always there. But no one saw it. it what was the, uh, it was always there? Well, the science, the, ca the order. Right. It's not chaotic, Both. okay? Oh. It's all of it. And our understanding at this point of where we're going with these future in plasma and, and what, I mean, if, if, if they can harvest and collect and understand to the extent that it, that it can, the universe is our, is our, is our, is our bowl, I mean, of, of places to go. We're not, we just, we're just, we're, we're just dumb enough, yeah. you know, we're just not smart enough to, to really understand it. It's I'll, always there. I want to bring this back. I want to try to stay close because we no, can no, get real. No, no, <clears throat> real. Let me try to offer an answer, try to answer your question myself. And I want to get back to Suzanne because I interrupted her. Sorry. Um, I don't think it's just that um, man has free will and creates chaos in an ordered world. Because what you find happening in the sciences once the Copernican revolution takes place and then you've got new, you know, Newtonian physics and then all modern physics is that once man begins to explore the subatomic world, he begins to find that um, the theories that he once held concerning his understanding, say, of a subatomic world, don't hold anymore because lots more is going on in that world that suggests something different from the order they saw. So it's not just man adding an element of disordered. It's that the very nature of everything, because it's subatomic, it, it has to do with every, humans, it's in us, we're made up of atoms. It's a whole way of looking at the world that calls into question whether there's any order or not, or if we can get to it. The interesting thing to, to back up what Mark is saying is, if you look at, I mean, the interesting thing about most physicists is the basis of physics is math, so that all physicists are going to go into their science through a quantitative order. They're going to abstract from concrete reality. I hope that's clear. They're not dealing with concrete physical things. They're going into a world of quantity. It's quantifiable. They're going into a world of mathematical figures, abstractions, and away from concrete material. And a poet is steeped in the concrete world. Um, so when they go there, they're aware, almost all great scientists reach a point because of their work in mathematics and the order that it reveals to them of saying there's a God. Without a question, Einstein says, all the great physicists, most of the great physicists, there's a God without a question. But not, none of them can explain it in a concrete way, certainly not the way Christianity does. So, so many of them come out of it believing in God Otherwise, they can't explain this order everywhere. The fact that order exists everywhere is, a, is proof for them there has to be a God. Everything's intelligible. How could it be intelligible unless there were a God with reason? So all of them go there. But at the same time, so many moderns who have that same mathematical background will look at the uncertainties of things and they'll draw very different conclusions. They will say, chaos, there's no order. You can't say that. So you've got large groups of physicists who are taking the opposite position and saying it's all chaos. Life is meaningless. There's no order. We make it what we want. So it's not because man 
throws everything off, it's because when they look at the world that way, when they're looking at a subatomic world that's universal to everything, including man, they come away with these different conclusions. So gradually, from the 16th century to our time, you've had two things running concurrently. You've had the Reformation world in religious life, and you've had the sciences becoming more and more the accepted way because it's, it's proven to be so predictable. It's, it's, prov it's proven to be so useful in managing our lives. That's why it's taken more and more control, more and more hold. So it's not just, I just want to be careful, Tracy, I just didn't want to you know, let this all fall on the Reformation because lots of things. And the other thing that's happening, and I don't want to go into, is the idealistic, what, the, the idealist tradition beginning with Kant and Descartes. When, when Descartes does what he does and Kant follows him, we're in, a, in a, a world in our heads. We're no longer, we're separated from our bodies with that tradition. We're no longer in a world that relates to our bodies. We have no way of relating to the world with our senses. So there, those three t traditions, in my mind, have, have, have mixed in, in such a way to, to produce this, this terrible confusion, I think, that's in our modern world right now. But sorry, Doc, can, I'm sorry. I was just thinking about what Tracy was saying, and um, I think you're right. It's not just a reformation, but I do think that um, when the reformers made themselves the arbiters. Um, this is what's true about religion, this is what's not true about religion, and is this is what's true and what's not true, because I say so, because this is what I believe and don't believe. So they're making it themselves. And then you fast forward, what, 350 years, and we have people saying, I was born a woman, but hey, I'm a man. I'm the one who decides Or that. anything. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, anything. It's so just. I'm going to ask one more time. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, that's all. I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, one more time. Why would some scientists see order and believe in God, and why would other scientists see chaos? Like, where is that? Where are those two mindsets coming from? Because they're looking at the same atoms, right? What you look at doesn't always have one solution. What you look at may have multiple undetermines. Or perspectives on that what thing. What you choose to use as the basis may be different than the scientist next to you. Okay. But then, it, but, but then what you're saying, Carl, is you're going back to the, the choice. Yeah, you're saying... There is no truth. You're saying that or it's there are all of these indeterminates and possible ways of approaching something that hasn't been determined yet. Um, and I choose which way I'm going to go. So it's, it's back to the same thing. Except it's a personal e arbiter. Here I am. Here I want to accept. Yeah, no, no, except. No, this is. You know, this is. I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing. No, I know. No, I know. No, yeah, I, I can hear it. I'm so grateful for your questions, Tracy. Honestly, I'm. No, I hear it. Except I want to. I want to say this because I. I myself don't want to leave it at this relativism because I. I. I think that's a lie. It's dishonest. If you look at the scientists and just to take your, this is very abstract because you're not giving concrete examples, but if you were to look at the scientists that you're in the 
in this abstract way, and we don't know who you're talking about, but if you took those two groups of scientists and set them next to each other, both of them still have to meet the, the test of the, of the object itself. They, they have to give um, an argument. They have to prove it. So neither group can get off of just claiming this is reality. Neither one can. No, they won't. In the scientific community, they'd be laughed out of court. Truly. So if you watch the scientists, I mean, it's, it's like people arguing religion or, or politics. Scientists are going to go say, absolutely not. I'm thinking of an of a, of a eminent um, evolutionary biologist who is quarreling with um, evolutionary biologists who are, who are trying to make claims they can't. He's a biologist. He doesn't believe in God. But he's using reason to show these men are absolutely wrong. And if you read his arguments and set them next to the arguments the other men are making, you say, one of them's reasonable, one's not. He's meeting the test of reason. I mean, he's proving what he's doing. No scientist can make a claim without supporting with an argument. So finally, all these things have to meet the test of reason. Does that mean there's no disagreement in the scientific community? No, but it means when you listen to the arguments, it's really amazing to watch how, how bright some men are in saying, you're absolutely wrong in this. You know, I mean, still you're, you're, you're going back using reason to, to, to prove a position you're taking. So these men are not just making assertions you know, in the dark. All of them have to prove what they're doing, or they, they wouldn't even be in their field. Um, but There's also some very grown-up religious scientists that, that do believe in God. It's not like they're all looking at the same data. One guy believes in God and one guy doesn't. I mean, can I say one thing? Sure. Okay. Dante, I wouldn't say he's a Catholic. I say he's a Christian because before then there was nothing else. So when you say that, it just kind of What do you mean there was nothing? Me. There was no Reformation yet. So but that doesn't mean there wasn't a Catholic church until everybody then. Was Catholic. Everybody, everybody, everybody was Catholic. Everybody was Christian. No, everybody was Catholic. No, hold on. No, Mark, you're wrong again. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, I want to, I want to, I love this guy. Hold on, wait, hold on. No, everybody was not Christian. You had, hold on. No, no, you said. pagans, but I mean, No, hold on. following the Christian faith are called Christians. Hold on. There was the, the Catholic or, or Western Christianity, Catholicism, and Eastern Christianity. Right, I know that. So there were, there was one unite, well, there weren't. I mean, up until the 11th century, there was one Catholic uni universal church. It split in the 11th century when the Orthodox churches broke off and made for the West. That was the first schism, and then you've got. But don't say that there wasn't anything until the Reformation because there was something real that was there. Well, she's just well, she's labeling it Christian there. rather than Catholic. She's just saying that it didn't have the name of Catholic, Catholic back yeah. then because well, they didn't have Catholic anything. But it's still a real, a real identifiable thing. Right, but yeah. we're trying to show the difference between the two, so that's what I'm yes. saying. I'd say this is Christian to me because either, you know, I know you had the schism with the Eastern and the Western, but that's for simplicity. I just, you know, and then Reformation, for me, I mean, I know I'm Episcopal, which is down from the Anglican, um, so I don't not really Presbyterian. My mother was Presbyterian. I don't consider myself ever being Presbyterian. So I'm kind of like in like a limbo there. Um, but for me, everything stems back to the corruption. And that's how you 
how we got this way. We didn't have the corruptions, we might not have had such. No, we always did have, always though, forever, ever. They were always there. I'm just, well. Well, let me say that seriously, because I, I mean, I'm, I want to hear you, because I know this is important to you. So I'm taking what you're saying absolutely seriously, but it's really important when you look at the church, if you read the history of it anywhere, the corruption never ceases, was never not there. Always. Right, but you had to have that for... Because there was Dante before the Reformation, well, so no, 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 don't no, make that a condition yeah, of what happened in the Reformation. Yeah, in the Dark Ages. Yeah. No, I understand that. So um, I don't really identify at all with Milton. Um, I identify more with Dante, per se. Can you say why? Interesting. Or why you don't identify? I mean, you sort that out. I don't know if you're not going to go there, but I'd be interested to hear what, because how you switch. No, listen. I want to hear her. <laughs> Come on. How you? How? What? What you'd say about both of those? Well, because as far as I'm concerned, when I think of, I don't think like I know Marcy says like, well, one is God of is the love and whatever. I have a very good friend who's a Presbyterian minister and she would take very, you know, right. that because right. that's right. not the case. Right. But um, for me, my point of view is I have a problem with the infallibility with the Pope, but I still, we still do all the sacraments. We're still very much in line with that. And Milton is it's far much, you know, don't believe that the body is dead, that we're damned, we don't believe that it's we're, we're bad people, we don't, you know, that that sort of thing. Go to Milton specifically for a second, can you, when you look at the poem? I want to get fleshed out, Milton and Dante, for you. So you said you don't have, why, what's in Milton? Because Milton, to me, is more of a farce type of thing because I can't really identify with um, meaning the body is bad and Satan kind of has, well, sort of good, sort of bad, but he's bad because of this and all of that. So to me, I don't, I, I, I don't have any uh, affinity for Milton because of he's just so far removed from how I feel on Christianity. I think that they, it's, it's, it's sad that, you know, you have the, the Calvinists who think, you know, people are predestined in the bad, and... Although Milton didn't agree with him on that. No, but it, there, were, um, there were parallels probably to it, but I don't know, it just seems a little distasteful that he would kind of like, he's making things up, and he's making angels do this, and heaven is like this, and it's, 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 it's I know you say you have a, a you know, you, the, the self is important, and, and they decide, or whatever, but, I don't know, I just, I just have a problem with Milton, it's more like a, a story, and he kind of had to justify his story, so he puts bits and pieces. We're getting short on time, can you go to Dante? Why, why do you identify more with him? Because it just makes more sense. <laughs> it makes more sense if when you, when you, you know, biblically it makes more sense. It makes more sense that there is a way out of things. There's a way that, you know, 
I don't know. It it it, it just makes it just it's more clear on how a person can be and how they can follow and how they can change their lives and the people around them make a difference and that type of thing. Yep. Milton, it was like, well, it's kind of like he was up here and then he's like looking down at you and and you know kind of yep. like thumbing his yep. thumb at you. Yeah. I, I I didn't quite care for that. We got a. Um, I had a question, but I can't remember what it was right now. Um, Gita. Did you say something about predetermination in Milton's work? Milton um, disavows it, predestination. Right. There's a passage. Of, I, actually, I've given it in the notes, by the way, on, on Boethius. That there's a reference to the line where Milton, um, he, he alludes to Calvin. And it's at that point that he shows his disagreement with him, that he didn't, he, di he didn't believe in the way that um, Calvin read predestination, although he allows for it in some ways himself. But it's always through a kind of angelic kind of knowledge with Milton. But I'm just wondering if you, what's your, what do you take? The implications of this from Milton or Dante for you? I think that's deepened. Uh, I think I'm more appreciative of my own faith. I was born a Catholic and never really, questioned it or just took it for granted. Um, and I think you said before, you know, Protestants are very good at uh, quoting Bible verses and I can barely quote any verse in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, just the difference about, I think, not just knowing the Bible, but having that faith. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, people, I don't know, I'm just more appreciative of being a Catholic and what it, what it has offered me. Um, it has just deepened my faith. Um, and I see the differences more clearly because, frankly, they have been very tempted to sometimes abandon the church and go somewhere where, you know, whatever you, whatever you do is fine. You just go to heaven because Jesus died for yeah. you. Wow. And it's a little more wow. than that. Right? And the sacraments. Yeah. By the way, I don't want to just to um, go back a second. I I had a thought, and it's lost me right now. But um, just along those lines, that, that what Dante said. Oh, here's what I when I did the course in UD, we typically did Milton first and Dante second, and I reversed that because students would in it, no, we did Dante first. Sorry, historically Milton last, and students when they were going to do their paper at the end of the semester would always choose Milton, always. Be, no, no, hold on. Because he's so much simpler. That plot is absolutely simple. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I tried Dante on for, I mean, read Dante and, and reduce it to a paper. The complexity of Dante is out of this world. I'm not kidding. I mean, all of you have sort of acknowledged it. He is infinitely more complex. Milton's simple. His, Milton's, I said this when he started. Milton's language is extraordinary. It's beautiful. It's rare. But his ideas are very simple. Dante is rich and complex and deep. The thing that I just didn't want to leave um, because of what Mary said is, don't ever forget the Paradiso. Dante always roots us in the natural world. He did it there. But at the same time that he affirms our human nature, that we are, we are not angels, we're humans, there's this great glory to the body, to us as humans, that the fact that he would have taken the fall and the extent of evil that you can't read Paradise Lost without feeling evil everywhere. It's Satan who dominates that work. All the major critics said Milton was of the devil's party. It's like he sympathized with him. Well, he didn't.
but he's such a he's such a compelling figure that you're almost overwhelmed by him. You read Dante and you're in a human world throughout. Even when we get to the Paradiso and we're going up in the heavens, we we are never allowed to forget we're with humans. Picarda. Um, what's your name? Q, Q, uh, Cunisa. Cunisa. I forget. Poor husbands, all sorts of lovers. <laughs> we're in a very, very human world, very fallen. Dante was damned. We're in a very fallen world. And, and he shows us this extraordinary glory. Who does that? Um, so, I mean, look at the two faces in that word. The, the one of them is dark and forbidding. It goes back to what Marcy said, that e even, if, even if you love as a Protestant, you have so much less help given to you. The Eucharist, the sacraments, you know, the, the whole attitude towards the body, the glory of it, the glory everywhere in our human nature. You can, you can love as a Protestant. I don't have any, I, there's not a question in my mind, lots of Protestants are going to see heaven and lots of Catholics won't. That's, I believe that. But if you look at the two religions and ask, what's behind to help you fulfill your life? There is more going on in the Catholic Church to help you realize your humanity than in the Protestant world. That's the truth. So, so when you think about it, you know, I mean, don't ever forget how truthful the inferno is and the glory of the Paradiso, because that's, that's one of the most extraordinary works you will ever experience in your life. No Protestant could have done that. Nature's depraved. Look at Milton, the angelic mind. He's always escaping our humanity. Raphael, again and again, this is the knowledge that you're going to pass on. This is the knowledge that men are going to... It's, in, it's platonic. I've already gone through that. It's platonic. There's this implicit contempt of the body. In Dante's world, it is a glory. God entered it. Tell you, if we didn't have all those corruptions, we might not have had much of a. The I want you to whatever you take away. I'm not disagreeing. I'm not. I'm just, I'm just saying. saying that's I, where I know. We got ourselves in I trouble. know. Listen to me, please. I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> Don't ever forget, the corruptions were always there. Look at Dante's response to those corruptions. Look at Luther's and Calvin's. Mary, we've got only a, anybody else. Mary. Wherever you are. Interpretation. Yeah. Wherever you are, but it comes from the church. So remember, you, too, to go back. I just uh, wait, remember, too, when you think about the differences when you go through Dante. Milton deals with the fall. I mean, that's his great accomplishment. Dante's dealing with. God. Well, Dante's dealing with the fall, too. He's yes. dealing with the fall of the church, and he's trying to show that the pillar of faith. And, and truth is still the church, even with all the corruption that's inside of it. And I think he's trying to bring that message through, where he's showing, yeah, yeah, we know those people down there, they're going to hell. I got it. I got it. They're in, yes, I know they got the robes on, but that doesn't mean they got a straight shot right, up. Right, right. And I think he's trying to deal with that reality 
of his lifetime, and, but he's trying to bring people back to the church. Without, very without taking the position that if the church is corrupt, that's a reason for leaving it. It's a reason for loving it more. Hold on, but just to, right. the other thing about if you go through Dante, even if you can't use the Catholic, the word Catholic or Catholic, you can in a sense. But remember that everywhere through the Divine Comedy, in all of his condemnations, all of his denunciations, because they're deserved, there's wrong, there would have never been a reason for him leaving the church or changing it, because look what happened when it was changed. That's what we've got today. There's not a question in the Commedia that the center of Catholicism or Christianity is Rome. Not a question. Seat of Peter, it's a seat of authority. It, it, is the, it, is the, it is the point of unity of Christendom, if you don't want to use the word Catholicism. Because otherwise you've got a, a disunified, a dysfunctional church dividing down everywhere according to whatever beliefs. The unity of the church is signaled in that place. And Dante's even so clear about it that he calls the universal city in heaven Rome when it's, I mean, when everybody speaks the universal language, because nobody there in heaven is going to speak Italian or, you know, but. Okay, we, and they're, they're going to chase us out. We're already late. Um, thank you all for all of your good work. We're going back to literature as prophecy. Whatever that means. Whatever that means. There you go. I'm, I'm grateful for all all your comments Marcy today, and uh, most especially that yours. Is there, is that yours. Yeah. All right. What's for the Oh, I should have said, tell Valerie. Tell her. Oh.